Hello, everyone. It is the 29th of September, 2023. This is the Room Now podcast. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now, and today we have a special guest, good friend and colleague, Catherine Dow. Catherine is an associate professor of internal medicine at UT Southwestern, where we worked together for many, many years. Catherine is an expert in all things, and that's why she's a great person to have on this podcast to help me struggle through the news and interpret it all. How are you, Kat? I'm doing great. I'm actually considered your good side. Yeah, that's true. Um, which means that when you're around, I get to play bad cop without guilt. Because if you're not around and I'm playing bad cop, well, then it's like, what's his problem? You know, but when you are around, you know, I misbehave, act cantankerous or be your curmudgeon. And, and then you say, he has no no bark and no bite. Just pay no attention to him. Do you agree? You know what, Jack? We need to do a podcast just about you. And I have a lot of scoops for our listeners. No, 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 no. First off, this is a podcast just about me, that you're here. And we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about the things that drive rheumatologists either to glee or to dismay. So I'm going to begin with a, a report that comes out of the UK and NICE. This appeared uh, this week in JAMA Rheumatology, and it's just sort of a, an, an info piece. It's not really a study, uh, and it's called The Painful Truth About Gout. I love the title, and they just have, it's just a few paragraphs riddled with the facts, and the facts are that gout affects 2 to 4% of adults in the United States and the United Kingdom, and then in some Asia-Pacific countries, it can be as high as 10%, that no matter what country you're looking at, the global burden of gout is increasing, and that's often been ascribed to the obesity epidemic, but also maybe not getting it under control in a public health way. And they make the big points of one, the majority of patients are, uh, with gout are not on urate-lowering therapy. And the number in a lot of studies across the board, population in a hospital system is about 30, 40%. Second, the majority are not receiving treat-to-target care, meaning the number who actually are treated that way and get to target is also below 40%, often 30%. And they make a big pitch with um, you know, addressing these unmet needs, but more importantly, the issue of health literacy um, on gout in your population. I mean, in the United States, we have 10.3 million people with gout, it is, you know, five plus times more common than RA, but yet we see a minority of these patients. And I don't even, and the data isn't even that great for how rheumatologists do. I mean, the data is that 90% of rheumatologists use 300 milligrams of allopurinol. That's it. We don't really venture higher than that. Anyway, does this kind of info get your, your, your ire up, your anger going? Nothing gets my anger going, really, but it's not surprising. There's a lot of people out there with gout, I suspect. And, you know, those numbers that you quote are probably just the tip of the icebergs. There are people who haven't even seen the doctor. They self-treat. But those who have, I'm sure that, you know, either like you're right, it's a health literacy problem. Um, they don't understand gout isn't just the joints, but gout can affect, you know, cardio the cardiovascular system, could affect renal disease. And so... 
they don't necessarily take gout seriously. They think, oh, you got a flare. Let's go ahead and treat the flare. They feel better. They don't come back. So in my opinion, I mean, this isn't very surprising to me. I think we could do better. We really need to educate the masses. Um, the problem here, though, Jack, is that, you know, there's a shortage of rheumatologists and trying to get patients into a rheumatologist is pretty hard. So how are we going to treat all these gout patients? I mean, right now, the primary care doctors are pretty overwhelmed. They just want to give a prescription of steroids and say, here, take this. Call me if you're not better. They're not really checking um, uric acid at the correct time either. They're checking it during an acute flare. So they're like, oh, their uric acid is low. You don't need long-term treatment. So that's my opinion. No, I think it is a big public health problem that that I don't know that you're, you're right, that rheumatologists can fix, but there needs to be concerted efforts here. Um, and, you know, us telling the primary care is how to manage gout isn't, isn't going to be well received because everyone, no matter who you are in medicine, thinks you know how to diagnose and manage gout when really we as uh, the the bearers of gout um, uh, and, you know, we, we see all the mistakes that are made. So anyway, the next news item I thought was interesting, um, Takeda, the manufacturers of vetolizumab, the integrin targeted therapy, also called Intivio, announced this week that the, they have a new subcutaneous formulation that the FDA has approved. So patients who have um, severely active uh, moderate severely active ulcerative colitis, they receive induction therapy with IV vetalizumab, but they can stay on subcutaneous vetalizumab going forward. And I think that this is a, a great lifestyle opportunity for the patients who have IBD, especially ulcerative colitis here. Um, but what, I mean, we, we share a lot of patients with the GI docs. Um, do you have patients on vetalizumab? And what, what, is, how, what does this mean to you? Well, I mean, definitely it's convenient for the patients. I think that vetalizumab works for the gut, but from my experience, you know, it's pretty weak for the joints. And usually that's when the gastroenterologists send their patients to me. And that's when I add sulfasalazine, methotrexate, or something else to try to control the joints. And then eventually I'll be like, hey, can you get them off the drug so that I can put on something more effective that will cover both guts and joints? So, um, but in terms of the approval, I think that is a good thing for patients because having to coordinate your travel schedule, your work life, everything to come in for an IV just is difficult. So, you know, I'm glad that the FDA approved this. Um, I'm hoping that the cost is going to be reasonable for the patients. But, the, you know, it's good that the, the, the number of advanced therapies to treat IBD and ultracolitis has really expanded. So, we do know that you know patients who we co-manage can be managed for their gut and their arthritis with TNF inhibitors, um, with JAK inhibitors, with um, uh, ustekinumab, the 12-23, and now with the IL-23 inhibitors, just not the IL-17s, which cause colitis. So you know that's a lot of good things. And in, in many of those drugs, it might be better at managing the, arth the arthritis than, as well as the, the gut. But I have a few people who actually have maintained fairly good control of their usually seronegative RA, which was probably enteropathic RA, just on the Intivio. Um, but you're right. Most of mine have uh, flared and needed other therapies, either oral DMRs or something else. Um, our next two reports. Yeah, and people, well, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, I was going to say that, you know, most people don't 
they underutilize oral DMARDs too. I mean, they have the biologic, they forget about the oral DMARDs. And that's where, you know, hey, I got some extra tools in my belt that I can help you with this and not take you off of something that's controlling your gut, but adding something to it that's going to be controlling your joints. Yeah, I have a, a, a QD clinic up this week on a an RA patient of mine who I had to co-manage and he had colitis and the, the title of it was a RA um, fast track to GI or something like that. But, you know, the problem with the, the patient was he was horribly non-compliant and he was not, he never could take or would take the oral DMARDs, whether it was sulfazalazine or methotrexate or whatever. And then he was, you know, hard to manage with biologics and injectables. I mean, it, the idea was that he really needed to be better managed by GI or that the two of us together could impress upon the young man that he actually needed to be compliant with visits, compliant with medicines, et cetera. So um, the next two reports are on psoriatic arthritis. One uh, factor that's kind of known to a lot, of, a lot of us, an international cohort study, multi-center study of 431 uh, established PSA patients with disease of more than two years shows that if they had comorbid obesity, that they were two to threefold less likely to achieve either remission or low disease activity state. Stated another way um, that they were 70% or 60% less likely to achieve uh, remission or LDA when compared to non-obese uh, PSA patients. So when I looked at you know the profile of those uh, obese uh, patients, they were more likely women, they had higher uh, number of tender joints, more joint pain, uh, VAS scores, higher enthesitis counts, and worse quality of life measures. But it goes along the line of obesity being a major problem in all our patients when it comes to drug response um, and disease severity. And, um, and this is something that I don't know that we, uh, we as a discipline, I think we talk about this a lot, but I think rheumatologists are much better at jumping up and down and talking about smoking and smoking cessation as opposed to being, you know, vigilant at making the patient or at suggesting the patient lose weight and give them goals and really hammering on this because when they don't, they're just going to stay in this bad state uh, with their established psoriatic arthritis. Yeah. And, you know, now that we have all these newer drugs for weight loss, I mean, I totally encourage my patients, see if you qualify for some of the, some of the semi-glutides, because when they lose the weight, their disease, you know, you don't, they don't need as much drugs. They actually feel better. They have less pressure to their joints, less inflammation. Um, so for me, I just tell them, hey, you know, we got these great drugs. They've been approved, um, especially if they have comorbid, comorbid diabetes. This is, there's no reason not to use it. I haven't seen any problems with using um, the semiglutides with our patients. Have you, have you had any issues that you've noticed no, with these no. weight loss drugs? No, they've done well. And the research on, you know, the GLP-1 receptor drugs is, um, is very positive for gout, um, for uh, patients who have heart failure in renal disease, uh, a smattering of reports in lupus showing that better renal function and whatnot. And I, I wonder, I, um, is there an, an anti-inflammatory component to this effect, or is it just purely the weight loss and the diabetes control um, 
that you know stabilizes endothelium and leads to better endothelial function. I mean, I, I, again, the mechanisms of the benefits, uh, secondary benefits, especially in heart failure and renal patients, and and now our patients. Um, you know, at ULAR there was a, a report from Canada of um, diabetics on either the DPP one drugs or the GLP one drugs and with autoimmune diseases, and they had better, you know, survival, lower over lower, um, um, mortality rates. Um, and the, again, the question for me is I like this, I'm going to encourage patients to use it, but I, I'd like to know more about the mechanisms to maybe know who to better give them to. Right, right. Now I agree with you. I think it's going to be a very interesting time in the next few years when we have more data about that. So um, this issue of vascular disease um, complicating, you know, our inflammatory um, conditions, an, an interesting study, um, a single center study of patients with psoriasis, almost 500 patients who were um, subjected to transthoracic Doppler echo to evaluate their coronary arteries, to look at the microcirculation. Um, what they found is of that 448 patients, 32% had evidence of microvascular disease in the heart. Um, and that finding was correlated with higher POSI scores, meaning worse psoriasis, longer disease duration, the presence of psoriatic arthritis and hypertension, all of those being independently associated with these um, the CMD findings, um, and they they came away with this. You know, I like these kind of points or these uh, analogies for every one point in Posse, um, and in one year, there was a five, roughly a five percent increase in the risk of um, coronary microvascular disease. So, uh, you know, this is is this similar to what you've seen in when you've looked at this literature in RA. Yeah, so um, we know that cardiovascular disease is higher, particularly in our patients with immune-mediated inflammatory conditions, right? And there's been a lot of studies looking at high CRP and cardiovascular disease. In rheumatoid arthritis, about 50% of patients um, can have coronary disease or cardiovascular issues. And RA itself is actually a risk factor independent of the traditional risk factors. The issue here is that, yes, we know that psoriasis itself um, can confer a risk for cardiovascular disease, but do we really assess for it? Um, you know, ULAR came out with some recommendations in 2022 on how to assess for risk of cardiovascular disease. They And they talked about lupus, they talked about mixed connective tissue disease, gout, but very glaringly, they left off psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Oh my. In 2016, yeah, in 2016, they talked about cardiovascular risk management for rheumatoid arthritis. But I think psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis are like the stepchildren. We don't realize it, but you know, there's been several studies, one by Alan Mentor, I remember this was like several years ago, who says that per body surface errors of inflamed skin, that's like the percentage of increased risk for cardiovascular disease. So controlling the disease, kind of like what we talked before, will control your cardiovascular risk. Um, I think we do need to do a better job at assessing our patients overall for cardiovascular disease. So do you think we should go so far as to do, you know, um, in everyone with especially psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis that we do 
uh, uh, Doppler studies um, of the heart or that we do Doppler carotids and whatnot? Or should we just be doing lipid profiling, Framingham risk score, identifying risk factors, and then encouraging them to see the cardiologist? No, I, I mean, I don't think we have to order like this trans thoracic Doppler. This is a small study. It hasn't really been borne out to be cost effective. I don't, I'm not sure whether or not we should be doing that, but I think we can do simple things. We can assess whether or not they're exercising. We can assess what their diet is like. We can assess, you know, their lipids with the blood draw, particularly when their disease is a bit more stable. Um, we can also assess whether or not they're smoking and advise them to stop smoking. But overall, I think this should be a collaboration between the rheumatologist, cardiologist, and the primary care doctor in order to make our patients, you know, as healthy as they can be, because these patients live with these diseases for a really long time. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's move on to um, a rare thing, and that would be paraneoplastic arthritis. Interestingly, today I was reviewing um, a survey of 165 uh, room now followers and asking them about what kind of things they want to see more on and whatnot, ranking very high on the list in most the, in the eyes and minds of most rheumatologists is you know more information about rare diseases and and things like this like paraneoplastic. So this is a study that appeared in last week uh, or so uh, of 92 patients who were diagnosed with paraneoplastic uh, arthritis. And when they looked at them, I mean, there's the basic takeaway. I mean, you get into this and look at all the different malignancies that were associated with arthritis. Um, and one, the list is really quite long. And they do divide into sort of hematologic um, and, and then solid malignancies, right? If you want to consider it that way. Amongst the hematologic, the most common was lymphoma. So that was 26%. And amongst the solid malignancies, the ones that were most common of the, all the solid malignancies causing arthritis, 41, 42% were um, lung cancer. The interesting thing about a lot of these patients is that most of them had um, more than oligoarthritis, and many of them were actually um, going to be CCP positive. Not surprising if you involve a lung with lung cancer, you might also turn CCP positive. But this is... Um, I know that whenever I've seen these cases, it's sort of like a, a oh my God, you won't believe this case I saw. And, and, and I guess my question to you to start with is, how often do you see cases like this? Um, and are they always, you know, uh, do you pick them up early or, or, is they, or, or, or is it you have to make several mistakes before you identify this? Or you let other people make mistakes before you step in and make the right diagnosis? So. Again, how common and what's the story? I don't think it's that common. And it's, I would have to look at this study a little bit more as to how the patients were diagnosed. Were, were they diagnosed with arthritis first and then later on found to have the cancer? Or is it that they have the cancer then later on developed arthritis? And, you know, so is it the chicken or the egg or is it true, true and unrelated? Um, I mean, the cases that I've seen had been patients who have, CCP positive rheumatoid arthritis that I'm treating. And oh yeah, by the way, you know, their SPEP is abnormal and their SED rate is really high, but their arthritis is under control. And then at that point, I send them over to, you know, hematology, oncology. They did a bone marrow biopsy and boom, there you have it. This is a leukemia. This is CML. This is a lymphoma. 
Um, and then when they go on treatment, I mean, they use high doses of steroids with these hematologic malignancies. So the RA melts away. So, you know, is it, so it, it, there's a lot of confounders. I'm, I'm not quite sure, right. you know, how they deem that these were absolutely perineoplastic arthritis. Um, so well, the, the definition, my... the definition on these were that that was the perineoplasia part was the cause, meaning it's not like they had, you know, I think you, we all see patients because of their RA or their lupus or their inflammatory image that they're at higher risk for malignancy. So we do see malignancy pop up in a situation and it can confound the situation, but we know they've got RA or lupus and or PSA and they get a malignancy. I think this is sort of before that end of the spectrum, meaning they haven't yet manifested RA and, and who knows if they might've, but in, in presenting as arthritis, these were cases that were found to have malignancies. So it's sort of like, it's not like, um, I think the vast majority of these were arthritis presentations than malignancies, but there were some, I think, that also were known lymphoma that developed arthritis and went through an evaluation and it was ultimately ascribed to the lymphoma. But I think it's all kind of the part of the spectrum. You know, I mean, it's like that, um, you know, Paul immunology or I don't know, maybe it was George Ehrlich that had the smiley face as normal, the, you know, the, the, big frown is cancer and in between was a, a, a grimace of immunology that, you know, of Im immune diseases that is a spectrum. And if you have an immune disorder or inflammation that you're at higher risk of cancer, um, the question is, did someone who gets cancer have inflammation beforehand and cancer presented first? I think that the point is that these cases, these cases do exist. I think you're right, though. I think this is pretty rare. It's rare. And then you also throw in the, the mix with people on immunotherapy who then develop arthritis because of well, the deranged immune system. That's a, <laughs> but that kind of fits in because, you know, you with the checkpoint inhibitors, you're taking off the brake and you're mm -hmm. pressing on the gas and the immune system goes nuts. Oh, boom, they get can't, they, they, they get, they get arthritis. Um, and, and, and while they're controlling their, 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 their malignancy. I think it's kind of the same spectrum. We're going to end with this uh, something a little more certain, but still puzzling, a report on almost 500 patients with lupus who were tested for ANCA. Now, I don't do ANCA testing in patients with lupus unless it's part of an uh, undiagnosed condition and you're thinking it could be lupus, could be vasculitis, and you do get you know, um, uh, an ANCA or a PR3 or MPO test. But in this study, um, they did ANCA testing and they identified 100 and uh, of 171 ANCA-associated vasculitis patients, um, as they found. And then there were 46 patients um, with lupus who also had a, an ANCA that was positive. And overall, the finding was that if you were ANCA positive, and I don't remember whether it was, I think a lot of these were MPOs and not PR3s. Uh, if they're ANCA positive, you're more likely to have worse baseline renal function and lower, um, poor renal outcomes with uh, them less likely to uh, remit as far as their proteinuria. So I guess my question is, you see a lot of lupus, you're a lupus expert. Do you see patients? I see a lot of patients with a lot of bizarre diseases and ANCA spills over and it's hard to know what it means. So it's not, I don't think it's always a smart autoantibody. I think it's quite stupid sometimes.
But the fact that it shows up in lupus, does this surprise you? Well, I would assume that, you know, with lupus, it's a whole medley of a bunch of antibodies that's floating around. And ENCA just happens to be one of those antibodies. Now, when they biopsied um, these patients and there was ENCA-associated vasculitis, the question is, were they staining for ENCA in the biopsies? Like, is that no, how they proved that was ENCA-associated is... vasculitis? Or was it just incidental? Oh, they're ENCA-positive and oh, they have vasculitis. You know, because lupus patients can have vasculitis and they can instantly be ANCA positive. So I'm trying to figure out if this is like, you know, two separate diseases here, or is this just a biomarker that's in there? Is this just an incidental finding? But it is I, rather interesting. I think the bottom line, the, the takeaway is 46 of the 491 lupus patients had an ANCA that was positive. So 10% of the lupus patients, and then the ones who did, Maybe they have, they're more likely to have renal disease. Um, but then again, what if I told you um, something not related to ANCA, but that, you know, 10% of lupus patients have a full house of double-stranded DNA, Rho, La, and RNP. Uh, and the, oh, guess what? They have more renal disease. So maybe that's what this is really right. saying. Not necessarily that because ANCA causes you know, renal disease with um, PR, three-associated, ANCA-associated vasculitis, that it's doing something similar. I don't think there was any biopsies here to um, further um, clarify the role of the antibody in maybe pathology. Would this change your practice? I mean, are you going to start testing for ANCA from now on? No, no, I'm a... Um, I'm here in 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 um, in Denver, where I'm lecturing tomorrow on um, why I don't do labs, why I don't do PROs, why I don't order X-rays, and what happened to my my drug reps. Um, it's, I'm it's a I'm in a bad mood. This is a great lecture to give, um, but I know I'm kind of a nihilist on on X-rays. I I don't order. I'm a lawyer when it comes to ordering labs. I want to know, I'm not ordering a lab fishing for stuff. I order a lab because I know what I'm going to do with the results. Meaning lawyers don't ask questions they don't know the answer to because when you do, you're going to get in trouble and you're going to lose the court case. I think we should be the same when it comes to ordering labs. So I don't know, I don't order wide batteries of tests hoping that if we troll enough in the serologic seas, something will show up and but it's not going to make me smarter. It's going to actually just complicate my life. I agree with you. I don't necessarily order ANCA um, with every lupus patient. The only time I order it is when you have these nebulous cases where you're not sure, is it lupus, is it vasculitis infection or something else? So, so I think that, you know, I will treat what I see and I'm not just treating just the labs. Mm. Okay, so that's helpful. I, I want to um, encourage our audience to um, look at this past Tuesday night rheumatology, which is available on the website, on our YouTube channel, on your podcast channel, where we had an interesting panel discussion on DMAR choices, DMAR changes with myself, Artie Kavanaugh, um, Maddie Feldman, and Alan Matsumoto. Um, boy, we had a really lively discussion um, I, I, didn't you say you were able to see it, Kat? Kat? 
Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was, I learned quite a few things. And I tell you, you know, Artie Cavanaugh, he has the best quotes. He really does, because I tweeted a few of them. And one of the things that he said was, you know what, if you think you're in control of your life, you haven't had kids yet. So <laughs> had nothing to do with rheumatology, but it was referring to the fact that, you know, you had no control over whether or not patients stop their medicines or reduce their medication dose. But it, it was very enlightening. And I learned also from uh, Maddie Feldman that, you know, what we're going to see next is that um, perhaps insurance is going to limit how many joints we can inject a year. Yeah. And that's, going to be eye-opening because you know it's there are some patients i rather would inject one joint or two joints rather than having to escalate therapy right away or send them to joint surgery right away you know so yeah that hasn't happened yet and i think but thank god that um maddie's out there finding these things that are being talked about and maybe we can preemptively engage in conversations that show how silly that really is Again, why they would do it for a forty or hundred dollar joint injection, I don't understand. But if joint injections are being coupled with ultrasound, which drives up the cost considerably in the United States and other uh, other places, um, that might be the reason to limit that. But anyway, it was a lively discussion. A lot of questions from the audience. Um, I think the audience, our, our our podcast audience, would like that as well. Next week on Tuesday night rheumatology. We start a new campaign and the month of October is a campaign on PMR and our slogan there is make room for PMR, R-H-E-U-M, of course. And next week we'll have a, a panel discussion on diagnosing and monitoring issues with PMR. It's going to be myself, Claire Owen, Anisha Dua, and Stephen Padgett. I think it's going to be a great, great session We'll send all of you some questions about diagnosis and monitoring on Monday. Be sure to answer those. You'll help the discussion that we'll have on Tuesday night. So Kat, thank you so much for joining me and awesome. helping to, to discuss this. I think it was really helpful for me um, and um, we'll do it again. Awesome. I yeah, I look forward to it. And I'm gonna be watching you on Tuesday night rheumatology next week. Okay. All right, folks. Have a great week. Bye-bye.